All right, good morning, everybody. Here we are, July 4th. Okay, happy July 4th, 4th of July. Let's say a prayer before we begin. Gracious Father in heaven, you uh, invite us uh, to pray to you and to come to you as children come to their father. So we come to you today and ask that you would uh, bless our nation on this day, that you would bless our rulers and give them wisdom so that they may uh, rule us, guide us, lead us uh, in ways according to your word. And we ask God that you would illumine our minds and hearts today as we study uh, your word, as we dive further into the book of Acts, that you would uh, apply these lessons to our lives and to our faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so uh, we're in the book of Acts, and um, we have been doing a number of different things. We've talked about uh, the apostleship, which will come up again. We've talked about speaking in tongues, baptism in its various uh, forms, and uh, we've talked about the relationship of Christianity to Judaism. And we talked, like last week, where we discussed the law, circumcision, food laws, and the, the, the Catholicity of the church, by which I mean the universality of the Christian church, the, the, the non-national element of the Christian church, which really I just think is kind of relevant for today, being July 4th, for us to think about that. I, uh, I know I've made kind of a uh, point uh, that in Acts, I think Acts makes the point that the gospel, the spirit goes to, uh, from Israel to the Samaritans to the Gentiles. And uh, I, I'm actually going to hit that again today because it is, it is in our text for reflection that we'll look at today from Acts chapter 9, which will be our main text today is Acts chapter 9. Um, you know, so, so I, I've said, and I'll say it again, that the 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 concept that the gospel Christianity the spirit of God is for all people okay um, is, is is such a major theme in Acts but not just Acts it's a theme in all all the New Testaments all over the place and I'll give you a couple of additional examples uh, so therefore I think it is a theme that we should think about a bit more and I'll talk about why I think that's especially important today especially important today. So, uh, future topics, just as a reminder, some of our future topics will include healing and exorcism. It's kind of fun, right? We're looking forward to that. Uh, there's some great stories there in the book of Acts that so will do healing and exorcism. Uh, and this isn't in any particular order, I don't think. Persecution and martyrdom, which, is gonna co- which comes up frequently, but it's uh, another major theme. Church and ministry, that is the doctrine of ecclesiology, which is... Uh, frequent topic, but it will come up today also. End times teaching, eschatology, the last things, the person and work of St. Paul, and Christology being ever-present. So today, uh, I want to focus on the person and work of St. Paul. Just explain who he is and, uh, and say a few things about him and about his conversion. So that's my main goal for today. And as you know, if you've been kind of following along, we're not going chapter by chapter by chapter. It's more topical. And so last week we were in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And uh, today we're in Acts chapter 9. And when we get to persecution, which may be next week, when we get to the topic of persecution, 
uh, which may be next week. Um, we'll go back again. We'll go back to um, Acts 7, where we do uh, Stephen and others. Okay. So it's, we're, we're not just going step by step in a linear way. The, uh, uh, so uh, the, 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 well, okay, before I do, before I do Paul, let me, just, let me just mention again, I have a few more things to say about my, my Catholicity topic. Uh, I'll say some general things, and then it will come up again when we read Acts 9. The Catholicity doctrine, uh, the idea, Catholic, not in the sense of Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, um, that's one use of the word Catholic, and unfortunately for many people, that's really the only use they know or familiar of with. But the word Catholic, to let's redeem it, okay? Let's, let's redeem the word Catholic uh, with small c, understanding it correctly, not as the Roman Catholic Church per se, but Catholic in the sense of all of Christianity as a global faith, as a universal faith, uh, family of Christ um, in, in every nation. Um, so we say it in the creed. We say it in the creed, we, although we often will substitute the word Catholic <laughs> with the word Christian when we say the nice one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. Substituting the word Christian there is, is fine, not incorrect, but the word Catholic is also fine. Yeah, anyway. Um, and I guess maybe it's also particularly fitting to talk about this on July 4th because um, not so much not so much here, but a lot of times in American Christianity, there's a blurring and a blending of nationalism, patriotism, which I'm entirely fine with, but uh, a blending of that with the Christian faith. And that is, um, can go beyond the point of propriety, right? So it is possible to so confuse uh, the Christian confession with the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, and I'm not against the Pledge of Allegiance. I just don't think it's a Christian confession. <laughs> it's not a confession of faith. Any more than the flag is a Christian symbol, it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a symbol of our nation and a good one. But, uh, but, but it's not a Christian symbol. Um, I, you know, I, 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 forgive me if I've told this story. I tell stories and sometimes I forget where <laughs> I've told them. But uh, I don't think I told this in here. So, uh, as a pa before I came to Irvine, I was a pastor in uh, Elmhurst, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And part of my ministry is, was, was visiting the shut-ins of the congregation on a monthly basis, going out to their homes and, uh, and bringing them Holy Communion, because they're not able to come to church. There was a, there was a retirement home, slash nursing home, um, nearby where a number of my members were and a lot of the local pastors were invited to go there once a month and do a chapel service at, uh, at the chapel and, uh, and so I was on that rotation and, and was happy, happy to do that because a number of my members would come and, then, uh, and others too. So I, it was really a simple thing. Uh, that wouldn't be the communion part. That was the part where I'd read and we'd pray and have a little message. But then the communion, would, I'd go to their individual places. But uh, there was, I had a contact. There's a person there I talked to, and, uh, and he always set it up. He, 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 he lined up someone to play the piano and that sort of thing, reserved the room. But then um, there was a new person. 
And so I, I went like normal and the new person we just met, we met right there, I didn't know there was a new person. And, and he, he wanted to be more like, rather than just being kind of the facilitator, he wanted to be the MC and, uh, for the chapel service. And, uh, you know, when, when you're stuck there, right, you just kind of roll with it. And, and so he would, okay, he introduced me, and then I did my part, and then, you know, he, he got up made some announcements. And he said, um, all right, now let's all stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And so we did that, and I thought, you know, I can't, <laughs> Pledge of Allegiance, totally great, do it, let's do it. But not in church, right? It's not an act of worship. It's not an act of worship. And so I, uh, I say that because I think for a lot of American Christians, there's not this sensitivity, um, or, or there's too much, right? I mean, we, we, the pendulum can swing so far, right? One, one direction where we... Um, you know, despise America, or you can go too far, the, I think, the other way, and identify the church, the Christian church, with any, any particular nation, and I think that that is, is dangerous, and, and the concept of the church as Catholic helps us, uh, that, uh, that we, are, we are a universal community, uh, and when we're together, we are not, uh, our allegiance, of course, is to, is to Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. I do think that that is helpful to us, and in our current climate in America, maybe even more so than ever, uh, I do hear from students uh, occasionally that, uh, you know, some, some concern about um, the things that are going on in the times relating to Christianity and whether it's race or ethnicity or nationalism or colonialism or the past. And so I do find that in my teaching at a university where all of our students are very diverse, they don't have a particular confession of faith to be a student there. And so, uh, so you have to be equipped to sort of talk about whatever might come up. And, uh, and so I, I don't want to go a long time on this, but I just want to say a few words because it, it does come up frequently. Is Christianity a Western faith? Um, and so if you're non-Western or non-European, then Christianity is an imposition from the colonizers, right? That, that is a narrative. That is a narrative in, uh, in our time, that Christianity is the religion of the oppressor, right? The religion of the white nationalist or whatever, whatever. And therefore... Uh, to resist some abuses, we should either, you know, the narrative is we should blame Christianity and therefore extract, our, ex extract ourselves from Christianity. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's true either. And this is why I want to make this point. I teach church history, so frequently whatever I'm teaching, that comes in. And I do think it's helpful to point out to people that Christianity is not to be seen as a European faith. Right? I mean, sure, Europe has had a long history and, and, and in many cases, uh, vibrant and beautiful history in Christian expression. But it's, 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 it's misidentifying who we are, what we are. I always point out that, you know, um, the, the, the Christian church began in the Middle East. And for the first six or seven hundred years, Think about that. 
right? 700 years, Christianity was primarily an African religion. North Africa, Egypt, uh, Ethiopia, but uh, the, the, which are all Muslim countries now, but before Islam came in and, and uh, in the 700s, that was all very Christian. And not only Christian population, but the leading Christians of the world were North African. And you had some in Antioch and Syria, and you had Tur Turkish leaders too. But for many hundreds of years, if I name any ancient church theologian of note, they're probably going to be African. Athanasius, Cyprius, Augustine, uh, Cyprian, Augustine, Tertullian, on and on and on. These are, uh, these are significant. So to understand Christianity as a colonial religion is, is not historically is not historically the full story or quite accurate either. All right. Okay. Um, Let's now talk about the person and work of St. Paul and this Catholicity thing will come up again, you'll see. Look at Acts chapter 9 with me. This is the, uh, this is the conversion of Saul, the conversion of Saul, whom we know as St. Paul. What do we know about this man? who is, for most of Acts, I mean, we call the book Acts. The full title of the book is Acts of the Apostles, but it's really mostly the Acts of Peter and Paul, with some John and a couple of others mentioned. But you don't really have the Twelve uh, doing all their thing, given equal time. It's largely a book about Peter for the first eight chapters, uh, ten chapters, but then once, once Paul, once Saul, and Paul is converted to Christianity, it becomes his book, largely. So, and he wrote, uh, there's 27 books in the New Testament, and Paul wrote 13 of them, 13 out of 27 books. So, very, very significant figure in the history of the Christian faith. The first and greatest uh, theologian, greatest uh, uh, one to explain the Christian religion in a systematic way, systematic theology. The Book of Romans, great textbook for systematic theology or doctrine. What do we know about this man? Well, he, he, we know a few things. We know he, he's, he's obviously Jewish. He was a Pharisee. We know about the Pharisees from the Gospels. The Pharisees just sort of appear, right? They're nowhere in the, in the Old Testament. You don't read anything in the Old Testament. There's no Pharisees in the Old Testament. Suddenly, the end of Malachi, the last, last book of the Old Testament, and there's 400 years of silence or of no prophecy, no prophet, then you have the Gospels and immediately the Pharisees are there with no explanation uh, where they came from. So the Pharisees are a party uh, that uh, existed in, in, uh, in Israel. They were experts in the law. They were, they were guardians of the law and, uh, and played a very, very important role socially and enforcing uh, not just religious law, but, but civil law, which, which in Judaism there wasn't the, the, the same kind of distinction. So we know the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. These were, they may have been called teachers or rabbis. They're not priests. Okay? You think of the temple and you think of the priests in the temple in Israel and Jerusalem, the priests doing sacrifices and them being very central to the Jewish religion. Well, the Pharisees aren't priests. Uh, the Sadducees were, were, were of a priestly class, but, but not, not the Pharisees. 
it, you know, it, it may sound uh, it may sound odd, but in a way, uh, I mean, Jesus was not a Pharisee, but uh, he 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 works on the turf of the Pharisees. That is, he, he discusses the law with them. He, he's on the turf of the Pharisees quite quite often. The uh, the so the Pharisee Paul's a, Paul is a Pharisee. He boasts in his other epistles in his letters that he was uh, an Israelite of Israelites. I mean, it's a it's a it's a boast, but it's a it's a negative for himself too, that he was a, a tremendous devotee of the law. He, he says of himself, Pharisee. We know he's from Tarsus, uh, Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is not Israel. Tarsus is a city in Turkey. It's still there, still a city. You can go to Tarsus. They call it something else, but it's. Uh, I looked it up. It's 300,000 300, people. So it's not a little place. And Saul was there. So that means that he is from the diaspora. The, the, the diaspora is the word that means dispersion. So the Jews are not just in Israel. They're not located just in Jerusalem and the environs of Jerusalem. They're all over and in the Roman Empire. And so and Paul's born and from somewhere up there. We also know that he's a Roman citizen which seems a little strange for a Pharisee to be a Roman citizen, but it gave him uh, particular rights and privileges. To be a Roman citizen during the age of the Roman Empire meant a number of things which were an advantage for a missionary. It meant, first of all, that you had a right of travel, right of access. You could, you could travel from place to place. It was like a universal passport if you could demonstrate you're a Roman citizen just wasn't an issue for you to go from place to place within the empire. It also gave him certain legal protection, which he depends on later in the book of Acts when he's arrested and imprisoned. He's able to appeal to Caesar. He has the right to be tried in Roman, under Roman law and in Roman courts, and, and that is, that's an important part of his biography. Okay. And when we think of Paul <clears throat> as the great missionary uh, we often think of him as the apostle to the Gentiles, but he also goes to the Jews. He goes, when he goes into a new place, Paul would start by going to a synagogue to discuss with the, with the people there uh, that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of Hebrew scripture. But he also finds himself in Athens on Mars Hill debating philosophers. And so, uh, so he's quite adept at not just going to the Jews, uh, but also to the Gentiles. He's the one, Paul's the one, who says, I became all things to all, so that I might win some. And, uh, and I, I, I intend to make a separate topic. I don't think I mentioned it at the beginning. I intend to have a separate topic on the mission of the church and evangelism and the making of disciples and the book of Acts and what we can learn from Acts uh, in terms of the mission of the church. That'll be a separate thing, too. So those are just some of the biographical facts and details that we know about this man. And uh, uh, so I think that will be enough preparation. Well, okay, I have a few more comments. Um, Saul. His name is Saul. He's, uh, uh, it's his given name. Paul is how we know him. And uh, while people often think that he becomes Paul, after his conversion, this, this doesn't seem to really be the case. I, he, he probably was just known by both. Paul being more of a Latin name and, uh, and Saul being, being a Jewish name. Because right after his conversion, they're still calling him Saul for a couple of chapters. So. 
So we know him as that. How do we know what we do know about him? Well, he is mentioned, of course, pr primarily in the New Testament. That's how we know what we know. But, uh, but there are many, many early Christian, early church, very early uh, writers, uh, late first and even in second century and, of course, beyond, who tell us biographical details about Paul that we wouldn't otherwise have, such as that Paul was a martyr. You probably all, uh, if you know about St. Paul, you know he was a martyr for the faith. But the book of Acts doesn't tell us that. We know he was a martyr because of early Christian testimony. Not only do they say that he was martyred, but they say that he was martyred in Rome. And, uh, and, the, and the mode of his martyrdom, he was beheaded. According to early Christian uh, historians or writers, Paul was beheaded. And that's fitting for a Roman citizen. Roman citizens, they could be punished. They could receive capital punishment. If you're a Roman citizen, you could be executed, but you wouldn't be crucified. Crucifixion would be for criminals or for foreigners, but, uh, but, but if, you were, if you were a Roman citizen, you were given the advantage of being beheaded. <laughs> um, and what's advantageous about that is because it's quick. It's relatively fast. If you have to be executed, you don't want to be crucified, which can take days. Uh, uh, being, being beheaded is a lot faster. <laughs> Therefore, less pain. So he did have, most likely, that was his end. He probably died during the reign of Nero, Emperor Nero. Uh, Nero was uh, responsible for some persecutions in the city of Rome, so he pr about the mid-60s. So that would have been about when Paul... Saul, Paul, died. Probably under Nero, probably after the great fire um, of Rome in 64. Uh, so somewhere around 64, 65, 66 is probably when Paul died. Uh, tradition also tells us he was the same age as Jesus. So um, born around the same time Jesus was. It's, it, it's possible, but it's, it seems a little bit hard to imagine that he hadn't um, ever seen Jesus. He, 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 we don't know that. He, he never says that he saw Jesus, and, uh, and Acts doesn't tell us that. He, he, he's aware of Jesus. But uh, being a prominent uh, Pharisee, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I would speculate, and I would say he probably had seen Jesus, probably had heard him and, uh, and, and, and seen him. When we get into the book of Acts, when we first encounter Saul of Tarsus, he is overseeing persecution. He's a persecutor. He is, uh, we'll see, he's um, overseeing the, the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, the, the, the deacon, the first Christian martyr, uh, stoned. We'll talk about him in, in depth probably next week. Uh, Paul, Saul's there. He's there. He's assisting, he's overseeing, he's approving. He, he, not throwing the stones, but he's like, I think they say he's like holding everybody's jacket while they throw the stones. So he's helping. And then in Acts 9, he's headed to Damascus with letters from the high priest uh, authorizing him to extradite Christians from Damascus to Jerusalem. To, 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 to arrest them and, and take them to Jerusalem. So we'll... Uh, let's see, any, anything else to say about uh, his biography before I do that? Um, probably not. So let's, uh, let's start reading the text of Acts 9. And at best, 
we will only get through the first 19 verses. That's my plan. Okay? So Acts chapter 9, if you have it on a device or have a book. Let's go. <clears throat> 9 verse 1. But Saul, uh, still breathing threats and murder <laughs> against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So that's what I'm saying. He had been authorized by the high priests in Jerusalem to go to Damascus, to the synagogues, arrest and extradite, take them to Jerusalem for trial and possible, who knows, a possible execution. Although in the Roman Empire, uh, they weren't permitted to execute. The Jews didn't have legal authority to execute people. So when they stone someone, they bring the, uh, the, the woman caught in adultery and they're going to stone her. Jesus interrupts it. And, uh, and, of course, they do stone Stephen. That's not legal, interestingly. They own the Romans. They're the government. They, they, they let the Jews run themselves mostly. But if someone needs to be executed, the Romans wanted to be the ones doing it. But we don't know exactly how, what Paul was going to do when he took people back. But this is, so he's not just acting on his own. He's under the authority of the high priest. The high priest. So already, uh, by the, by the um, what, fourth decade of the Christian era uh, or so, uh, the, the, uh, the temple um, leaders are, are breathing fire against the Christians. Uh, they're going, you know, breathing threats and murder. <laughs> so they're, uh, they're, they're hostile, right? They're hostile to this Christian, to this Christian movement. Uh, it's also interesting in, in Acts chapter 9, if you kind of look through the book of Acts, uh, the, the chapter, how does Acts, how does Luke in Acts 9 refer to Christians? We can learn um, a few things about the nature of Christianity by seeing how were Christians referred. They're not probably called Christians yet. We know that in Antioch is where they're first called Christians. But in Acts 9, uh, there, there's a couple of, of ways they're described. Disciples of the Lord. Uh, then in uh, verse 2, belonging to the way. Men and women. In your English Bible, the word way is probably capitalized. The way. This may have been one of the earliest ways that Christians were identified, or identifying themselves, because this is written by Luke. The, the conversion of Saul is told three times in the book of Acts. It's, mentioned, it's talked about three times. The first time is in Acts 9, where Luke is relating the story. Then in Acts 22 and Acts 26, in both those cases, it's Paul himself telling the story. So when Luke is describing in Acts 9 the, uh, the conversion of Saul, he refers to the Christians as those belonging to the way. And uh, there is, I, I, I double-checked before I came in today, there, there actually is an organization uh, called The Way, The Way International. And I remember learning about them years ago, and I didn't know if they were still around. And they are, the way. And, uh, it, and it's a non-Trinitarian Christian, uh, well, not a Christian group, but a, but a cult, basically, a non-Trinitarian cult um, that, uh, that goes by that, 
All right, it goes by the way, and, and this, is where they, this is where they get that. What does it mean? The way, the path, and to be a disciple, a student. So Christianity is already discussed in terms of more than just simply agreeing and checking the boxes to a list of beliefs. Right? Christianity is, is a doctrine, it's a system of beliefs, it's a faith, but it's a way. We're disciples in, on a way, or path, or road. There, there's a very early Christian, outside the New Testament, there's a very early Christian document called the Didache, which I see a couple people nodding their heads. The Didache, which is Greek, and it means the teaching. Actually, the whole name of the document is, is really long. The, the teaching of the twelve apostles of the Lord, something, something, something. But it's just known as the Didache. I commend it to you. It's actually, you can look it up. It's uh, very old, so it's in the public domain. You can find it on Google pretty easily. Lots of translations. Read it. It's a document that um, is uh, dated a little variously, but no later than 150. But some people date it already in the first century. Okay, so we have a, a first century book that's not in the New Testament. It's Christian, called the Didache. And it tells us a lot about what the early Christians did and how they thought and how they practiced their faith. It's really interesting. It tells us how they did baptisms. It tells us how they did the Lord's Supper and gives some prayers and the, how they said the Lord's Prayer and stuff like that. But the first line of it, I think it's the first line of it, says that there are two ways. There are two ways. Uh, there's the way that leads to life and the way that leads to death. And then it talks about Christianity as the way. So here we have that. Christians are also called in the, in the Acts chapter 9, those who call on the name of the Lord, uh, disciples, saints. The word saint is already used. I think it's the first time the word saint is used in the New Testament of Christians. Uh, brothers and sisters, um, and, and probably one or two other ways. So in, the book of, in, in this chapter, Christians are referred to by a number of different things that each of them can tell us a little bit about what it means to be a Christian. All right, so let's just read this. See if we can get past the first two verses. Uh, uh, yeah, he, he, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he ap approached Damascus, and suddenly a light, flashed, uh, light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Okay, we'll pause. What's happening here? So we, we know he, he's on his way to Damascus to arrest a bunch of Christians, if he can find them, in the synagogues. That's where they're meeting. He's going to go to the synagogues. The, uh, the light flashes, and he falls to the ground. I think that's a, sometimes an appropriate way to respond to the presence of Jesus, right? To fall to the ground. Um, that's what he does. He I mean, how bright does the light have to be to knock you over? It's, it's, he falls to the ground. There's only, I mean, there are actually, I'm not, not to joke, there actually are a couple of 
passages in the New Testament that, and, and the Old that talk about the appearance of God or God being uh, present, revealing himself in some kind of a theophany and people falling to the ground. And uh, I don't think it's irrelevant. I don't think it's a meaningless detail. In John's Gospel, John's Gospel, you remember the story where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he's arrested and uh, tried and then, and then led to his crucifixion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in John's Gospel, the soldiers come to him and uh, uh, he says, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And the uh, soldiers say, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And do you remember what happens? Jesus says, I am he, or I am. And they fell down. All of them says they stepped back and they all fell to the ground. All these soldiers. Now, why didn't they notice that as being, uh, maybe we shouldn't arrest this man. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I mean, if they fe- all of them fell to the ground, that's supernatural. They didn't just all do that. But yet, I, I don't know. To me, that would have been a indicator that uh, there's power here. <laughs> and, and, but, but, the, but his identification is I am, which we know is the name of God from, uh, from the burning bush, right? So, uh, who, Yahweh, I am. Okay, Jesus is identifying, you know, who you're looking for, uh, I am he, I am, and boom, they fell. So the name of God, they're on the ground. At, at, at the appearance of Christ, Saul's on the ground. And there are other places we can find this. Um, and I'm not saying that this automatically means we should all be crawling you know, into church. Um, but, uh, but being on our knees and uh, even being on our faces is not a bad idea from time to time. <laughs> uh, in terms of a posture before the, before the presence of God. Right? The presence of God. Um, not to grovel in terror, like he probably was here, but, uh, but in some sort of recognition that uh, the Almighty is, is, is present with us. Okay, so he falls to the ground. There's a light, and um, he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul, of course, he doesn't even know who he's talking to. You know, so so, so who, who are you? Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Jesus, at this time, has already been uh, arrested, tortured, crucified, died, buried, rose, ascended. This is the ascended Lord. And says, you're persecuting, not mine, but me. Okay? I really want to dwell on that. I think that is just a super important uh, line. You're persecuting me. Jesus, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So, uh, in other words, what you do to the church, you do to Christ. Okay? What you do to the Christian, you're doing to Jesus. There's a, uh, a, a radical identification of Jesus with his church. I, this is important. So, I've said that we're going to do ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. The uh, American Christianity and, 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 and American um, Protestantism in particular, and maybe even American evangelicalism even more in particular, uh, of which we tend to be lumped, um, 
has not got, often, has not got a strong doctrine of the church. Okay? Um, we don't have a strong sense of the church. We have a strong sense, uh, rather, of individual discipleship of Jesus, having a personal relationship with Christ. Wonderful. Good emphasis. But when we do that at the expense of any kind of teaching or or sense of being part of the body, being part of a community. And I know COVID has made that particularly challenging um, in our time. But, uh, but I, you know, I, I just encourage you to reflect on that. So when Jesus says you're doing something to the church, by which I mean Christians, you're doing it to, to me. We see this also in Matthew 25, right? Matthew 25, where Jesus says, um, I was hungry and, and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. When did we do this? When did we see you? Well, one of, one of the least of these mine. You've done it to me. This identification. We are, uh, as Christians, frequently Paul will say, uh, we are in Christ. Right? I was taught, when you read, uh, when you read, like, for, when you read Greek, for instance, uh, always pay close attention to the prepositions. Of, in, by, with. Okay, so we are in Christ. That doesn't just mean uh, we're, Christ, you know, we like Christ. Or, or even that we love Christ. Or even that we follow Christ. We are in Christ. There's a union with Jesus Christ that is more than a metaphor. I think we think of it as a metaphor. You know, you're not metaphor. It's not like you're in Christ. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. You're in Christ. Now, you don't blend and blur into him and lose your identity like it's, you know, like a drop of wine in the ocean. But you, you remain you, but we are in Christ. And therefore, we are communion. We're a communion. Communion means union with. We are united with each other. And the communion of the saints, when we say that in the creed, that we believe in the communion of the saints, uh, uh, that doesn't just mean the people in this room. It doesn't just mean the people in my congregation, right? The communion of the saints, when we confess that, means that we are confessing that we are one body with all who call on the name of Christ, uh, not just universally, but throughout time. And, 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 and beyond, okay? So, so as the communion of the saints, we are one family with those Christians right now who are being arrested and persecuted in Iran. They're yours, and, 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 uh, and you're theirs. Remember that when you read the stories about uh, Christian persecution around the world. These are mine. These are my people. This is, we're one body with them. Um, so as to maybe stir something up in us. When we read those things, uh, one part of, the, part of the body hurts. We all hurt uh, when one part of the body is Cru uh, uh, persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. So what we do to the church, what we do to the Christian, uh, we do to the Lord. It's not just sort of an individuality, individualism, which is the creed and religion of our day, <laughs> is not that biblical, right? That kind of rugged individualism, me and Jesus uh, against the world. I, you know, and I do too, we know a lot of people uh, who say things like, I, uh, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. 
I love Jesus. I read the Bible. I pray every day. Where do you go to church? Oh, I, I don't go to church. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. Uh, to say you love Jesus but don't love the church. Now, I understand what that means in part. Of course, you know, um, we're sinful people. We're, we're very flawed. And so uh, any congregation, any church, any denomination, any synod is going to be full of sinners. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore they backbite and they gossip and they fall into error and they resist correction and they commit grievous sins against the Ten Commandments. I mean, they're sinners, they flaw, they're flawed, they, they break down. Um, and so, and they may be hypocrites from time to time. They might be fire and brimstone judgmental. They might be so interested in being gracious that they have no concern for morality, right? So the church is, I get it. Okay? There's a lot to say there <laughs> um, that we want, to, we want to not ignore. But to say that you can love Jesus and, to, and not love the church is a contradiction. The church is the body of Christ. He's the head of the body. So you can't love a decapitated head and disregard the body. See, so, so we're, there is a oneness there. Uh, the, I mean, Paul, Paul, who, who, who is the one who gives us that phrase, body of Christ, he's the one here in this. Uh, you're persecuting me. Um, and and he, he understands that, okay, one body. And he also says, in Ephesians 5, Paul compares the relationship of the church, and he uses the word church, with Christ as a marriage. Okay? Uh, Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride of Christ. And he uses the one flesh language that we see in Genesis, which Jesus also uses in a different context. So, that, so I'm just trying to step away from thinking, when it says that we are one flesh, in a marriage, the husband and wife are one flesh, that's not a metaphor. It's not like, it's not your, you're not saying, well, it's like we're one flesh. We're one flesh. There's a reality there, an ontological, intrinsic reality, the union of husband and wife. That is the same kind of union between church and Christ. If you attack my wife, you attack me, right? So, uh, and I pointed at her, so forgive me. I didn't, so don't attack her. Nobody look, don't even look at her, Okay. <laughs> But you get, my, that's meant to be a dramatic way of saying that the church, in Christ, there's a unity there, and, uh, and, and there, there's, a, there's a flawed sense of what the church is. People think of the, some people think of the church as a human creation, and it's not. I mean, particular uh, organizations, particular uh, alignments and denominations and uh, uh, buildings and elected officials, I mean, those kinds of things, yeah, they're, they're human because we are humans. But, uh, but, but, but to, to say that the church is a human creation or to imply that you can be a Christian and not be in the Christian church is just not true. All right. See, I've, I've often said, uh, and I didn't make this up, I think C.S. Lewis says something like um, that uh, the devil likes it when you do good works. In fact, the devil will encourage you to do good works. But what makes it diabolical is that he wants you to do those good works in the wrong way or to the wrong extent. So, um, so you know, sex is good in the right context. Um, I heard a preacher once say that sex is like fire in, 
you know, in, in, in a fireplace, uh, fire brings warmth to the room, but in the curtains, it's a disaster. Well, sex in, in, in marriage is, brings life and warmth and, and humanity, but outside of that, it can be very destructive. So the devil loves it when we, do, when we like good things, the things of God, but to the wrong extent. So if you say, I love Jesus, all right, the devil can use that if he can alienate you from the body of Christ, which is the presence of Christ. In earth, on earth. Okay, so, all right. Any questions? 10.05, questions at this point? Or comments? Okay. <laughs> um, a flashing light, so the presence of great light is often accompanied by the um, appearance of God. Okay, not always, but we see that numerous times uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, Immediately, I think of here, when I see that, is I think of the transfiguration, right? Christ on the mount, the, the Peter, James, and John, they see him transfor- transfigured, transformed, and uh, I think it's Matthew says he's brighter than the sun. Well, he must be brighter than the sun because Saul was blinded, <laughs> temporarily, but he was, he was blinded uh, by his encounter with Jesus Christ. The, to have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ will mark you, okay? It will mark you, and it marks him, even physically marks him. Now, he lose, he, his, um, the, the scales fall from his eyes later, days later, um, and, uh, but it's possible that, uh, that his eyes were impaired throughout the rest of his life. There's a few indications in the epistles where it seems like Paul's talking about have his thorn in the flesh that he asked God to deliver him from, but God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. May be referring to bad eyesight because somewhere else Paul says something about um, uh, see I forget which epistle it is so you can tell me um, where Paul ends his epistle saying uh, see it, I'm writing in my own hand big letters um, because he was probably dictating generally in someone else's hand but when he finishes it might be Galatians when he finishes it he says takes the the stylus from his dictator, or <laughs> dictation person, his scribe, not dictator. Um, yeah, so if the person being dictated to is a scribe, what is the dictator? I don't know. You don't want to use that word. So he takes the stylus and he writes in his own hand. Why big letters? Maybe he had bad eyesight. So that's a possibility, but you're marked by an encounter with Jesus. Um, uh, yes, so um, Jacob, right? Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord and has his hip thrown out of joint. Um, there, there, there can be a physical uh, marking of you to remind you uh, that you've been in the presence of God. So we see, we see that from time to time. He's, uh, he's blinded, but it says he was, um, um, number, verse 8, very, very interesting turn of phrase. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. <laughs> um, Jesus he has eyes, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? He has eyes to see, but he can't see. He neither ate nor drank, so he knows he has encountered deity because he fasts, right? He knows he is, he, he knows he's not worthy, right? And none of us are worthy. He knows that, uh, hence the falling to the ground, hence the being blinded. But the, um, I need, uh, uh, you know, does he even know at this point what he's going to do? I don't think so, because he says, the Lord says, rise and into the city, namely Damascus, where you are already headed. 
and you will then be told what you are to do. Okay. So where is Paul's conversion in this story? Where does he go from being a hater of Jesus Christ to being a Christian? At what point does he make a decision <laughs> or an act of the will? Okay. Uh, he, he doesn't come to Christ. Christ is, says, Christ, you know, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> You're mine. He's claimed by Jesus. And immediately, there's no indication that Paul had to think this over, um, that Paul argued, um, although there, there might be. There might be an indication of that. Uh, I read to you from the ESV, but how many of you, if, if any of you, uh, grew up or know the King James Version? Did you kind of grow up with it or learn it at home? Um, I, I kind of did. Um, not, not in school so much, but my, my mom liked the King James, so I heard it read. If you read the King James Version, uh, verse 5, I think, um, or verse 4, verse 4. Falling down to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The King James Version adds another sentence. You know what I'm going to say, Pastor Rody, because you're smiling. So maybe you know where I'm getting it. Um, what's the, is it in the footnote? No. Uh, what is the added line? Because it's a different text, so it might not have been original, um, but it is interesting nonetheless. Um, anybody happen to know, what's the missing statement that Jesus makes to Paul? He says, uh, uh, he says, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> right? What's that even mean? Right? Um, it's hard for you, or, or I think as the King James says, you know, something like, uh, it's hard, hard for thee uh, to kick against the pricks. Okay, a prick, a goad. Um, I, I, this, that line came back to me a while back because I was listening to a, ca a song by Johnny Cash. And I think, it's, I think the song is, the man comes around. It's about Jesus. <laughs> it's about the coming of Jesus. And he cites that. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. Um, anybody know what that's talking about? <laughs> Look it up. It, it, the goad, the prick, is, um, it's, it's like a herder. Um, if you're herding an ox, hurting your herder, you're herding an ox, uh, you, you, you might use a whip, or you might use, they have, I mean, we have cattle prods, right? Like they're electrified to, to prod the cow to make it move. And um, so, but pre-electricity, they're using like pointed objects to prick the rump of the cow to make it move. And the, the cow frequently dislikes that and will kick. And when you kick the prick or the goad, you get hurt even more. So you don't want to do that. It's no fun to get goaded, but if you kick against the goads, it will hurt more. <laughs> now, if that's authentic, and I, again, I'm not going to argue the textual criticism. Modern translations usually leave it out because um, some, uh, some ancient Greek manuscripts have it and some don't. Okay, now, it doesn't change any doctrine whether it's there or not. So, you know, it, but... Um, but it could mean, <laughs> if, if, if you want to look at it this way, it could mean that, um, that maybe Jesus has been working on him a while. Has been goading him, has been prodding him a while, and he's been resisting. And, you know, it, it's almost like saying, you know, forgive me for being a little 
sarcastic, but it's almost like saying, uh, Paul, you stupid ox, you're just hurting yourself. Okay, Could, something like that, right? The, the goads, you're kicking against the pricks. It's bad. Um, so in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to shepherd you or herd you and, uh, and don't resist. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't know who he's talking to at first, but he, he immediately obeys. So he says, get up and go, and he does. All right, let's read a little more. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, uh, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man uh, named Ananias uh, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, um, <laughs> Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Natural, natural response, right? Uh, you know, not, it's not as if God doesn't know who that is. You're not telling God anything he doesn't know. But uh, natural response. <laughs> you want me to go talk to that guy? I mean, as far as Ananias goes, he's being told to go to his death. You know, it could be that guy's going to arrest, don't you know? I mean, he's here to arrest people. You want me to go see him? I might not come back. Um, he, uh, okay, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. There's that Catholic doctrine again. Okay. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He also goes to the synagogues. But uh, he is chosen by God to do that. Okay. Um, verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, wow. Wow. Brother not enemy, not persecutor, not hater of the faith anymore. Uh, brother Saul, brother. The, the reconciliation that Christ brings between, to enemies. Brother, um, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like, hands fell, uh, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Okay, so this is, this is the passage that we often think of as Saul's conversion. And it's not just his conversion, it's also his call. He's being called and appointed to be an apostle, um, which in, um, in, when you read the epistles of Paul, numerous times Paul will make a point. How does Paul identify himself almost more than any other way? I'm an apostle. And apostles are not just anybody, okay? Not just all Christians, not just pastors, not just missionaries, are not apostles. An apostle is one who has been uh, called, chosen, and sent by Jesus personally, directly, 
and given the authority to speak as Jesus Christ. That's an apostle, and they died. Okay, they're all gone. There are no more apostles. The church is apostolic, but we don't have apostles. Uh, there are the twelve, and then Judas is is out, and then you know uh, the they they elect Matthias to replace. Now in number thirteen, so we have so Paul. Um, Paul frequently in his epistles, like 1 Corinthians, I mean, he, he just over and over, because it's a sticking point. Why would you write 10, uh, uh, 13 letters and uh, keep repeating, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle? Because some people were saying, clearly, you're not. You're not. You're not one of the others. We don't have to listen. To, we don't have to listen to you when we disagree with you, because you're not one of those. No, I am, and here it is. Uh, the Lord Jesus appeared and appointed and sent. Okay, so he is an apostle um, and has the authority, the apostolic authority, to speak for Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. And, um, and then maybe for the last moment here, um, I, I'll say a word about verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now that's not, a, you know I mean... Um, you're probably not going to use that as your evangelism campaign theme. <laughs> you know, uh, we want you to join our church because we're going to show you how much you must suffer for the name. Um, right? I mean, so, 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 so Saul, who is the persecutor, Saul, who oversees martyrdom, becomes persecuted, becomes a martyr. And, and, him, and he actually looks at his own persecution, again, as a vindication of his stamp of approval of Jesus Christ. Because he is being targeted for the name. Where is it in Acts? I, I always forget to look this up. But uh, shortly hereafter, the apostles are arrested and then beaten and sent away. And it says, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. So there's joy, <laughs> there's joy in being identified with the name of Jesus Christ to such an extent that, uh, that, that persecution comes. I don't think we should seek persecution. So um, in, in the early church, when there was martyrdom, martyrdom was uh, common. It was so revered and elevated that, that a lot of people sought it out, sought to be martyred. I mean, people would, oh, the Romans are in town. I'll go volunteer. I'll go up and I'm a Christian. And, and they arrest you and take you away. Uh, the bishops uh, uh, forbid that. The, in the early church, the bishops, no, you can't do that. You don't, you're not seeking to die. But, uh, but, but faced with it, witness to Jesus Christ until the very end. Um, the, the great uh, biblical scholar, Origen, 3rd century, Alexandria, his father is arrested eventually becomes a martyr. He's 16 years old, and he's going to go too and volunteer to be arrested and, and persecuted. And his mother prevents him from doing that by hiding all of his clothes. <laughs> I'm not going to go. So modesty, right? He, you know, I'm not afraid to die, but I am afraid to be seen <laughs> unclothed. It's funny. It's funny. True story, though. Okay. Uh, it's 1020. God bless. Uh, God's blessings on your worship. God's blessings on your um, 4th of July celebration. You're welcome.